Well, this evening and over the coming months, we have the great privilege of looking at the epistles, the letters of the Apostle John. And before we dig into the first four verses of which we will study, tonight it's proper to have an understanding of circumstances surrounding the first letter. Context always helps, doesn't it? This is the same John who, including this book, wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Five total books that are found in the New Testament, one of which was the book of Revelation. And I make this point because many Christians, myself included, find the book of Revelation to be somewhat intimidating. For some, it's even the most difficult book in the Bible, they may say. Yet as it is contained in the canon of Scripture, this means that while it may be possible to read without fully understanding the purpose for which it was written, we simply cannot overlook it and write off studying it. For we know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. There indeed is a purpose to the book of Revelation, and there is also a purpose to the epistles, the three letters of the Apostle John. Unlike the book of Revelation, each of John's three epistles indeed have a purpose. James Boyce argues that each book of the Bible has a distinct purpose. So when we study a book, whether it be 1 John, Revelation, Joshua, 1 Peter, Haggai, it's essential to determine what that purpose is in the book being studied. So that's our aim here over the course of the next coming months, to determine what it is that the Apostle John has for us in these three letters. So having said that, have, have you all ever enjoyed a dessert or maybe an entree so much that upon finishing your portion, you decided that you could not live without knowing the recipe from the chef who cooked the dish or from the person who baked or made the dessert. You determined that it was so good that you just had to have it, that you could not live without knowing how to make this food item, only to be told upon asking that you'll never get the recipe, that you'll never know how to make it, because it's the age-old tale of, it's a family secret. And you know, in a lot of ways, when, when you examine John's letters, you're faced with a similar scenario, except that his as one commenter, he writes, the last surviving apostle does not stubbornly suppress his secret. Instead, he freely and graciously leaves with the next generation the mystery of life-saving message, the life-saving message of the gospel. It was John who, writing somewhere between 50 to 60 years after Christ's resurrection, he reveals to the churches in and around the city of Ephesus the central ingredients of what verse 1 calls the word of life. And at the time of writing, John is likely the only surviving member of the 12 apostles called by our Lord Jesus to follow him and to teach the gospel message of Christ. He wrote the epistles to the churches of Asia Minor. And while the epistles themselves provide no information to help us in determining a date for their composition, most scholars generally date their composition between A.D. 80 to 95. The church at this point was now likely composed of second and third generation believers, Christians, Simon Kistemager seems to agree as he notes John addresses, he addresses fathers. He addresses young men, many of whom have heard the gospel, we'll see, from the beginning. They know the teachings of Christ, obey his commands, and they also confess his name. 
For some Christians, this was a time of persecution, as was the case for the other apostles, with John being the only one of the lot who did not die a martyr's death. For others, it should come as no surprise that the zeal to live unto Christ, it had quickly faded. False teachers, like the plague that they are to the church, quickly permeate throughout some of the local congregations. And this combined with those who are no longer feeling the need to live up to their Christian standards caused John to write to them. And throughout our study of John's epistle, what I believe, I'm convinced of the fact, will become evident is that especially here in his first letter, John's writing was meant to show to his readers that the claims made by false teachers were just that. They were false. It was around this time, toward the end of of the first century, where these false teachers, likely known as Gnostics, really gained their ground in the Christian church. The word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word Gnosis, which means knowledge, And what Gnosticism did was it combined pagan mysticism and Greek philosophy. Remember, at this point in history, we're barely a handful of generations removed from Christ's earthly ministry. So the Gnostics were smart in how they went about infiltrating the Christian church. They caused them to exalt the acquisition of knowledge because, in their view, knowledge was the end of all things. And because of their knowledge, they had an entirely different lens to which they understood Scripture. It was this understanding that separated themselves from the Christian who hadn't yet been initiated to know or understand such knowledge, the knowledge that they possessed. Gnostics also declared that all matter is evil, but they said that spirit is good. And this worked itself out as Gnostics would teach that because that it mattered, because matter is evil, true, but while your physical body is is that matter, right, your soul is what? Good. You can see where this is going, right? Gnosticism inevitably led to severe doctrinal error, errors of which also concerned the person of Jesus Christ. If they teach, the Gnostics teach the body is evil, then God, who is a spirit, he cannot have any contact with the body. For the incarnated Christ, this meant you cannot have an incarnation. You could not have God becoming man. And this is what they taught. They taught that Jesus didn't have a literal human body. Gnostics denied the real humanity of Jesus. They would argue that Jesus was from God, but denied that he was God in human flesh. They said his spirit was from God, but when Jesus was on the earth, that wasn't really Jesus in human form. That was just what he appeared to be. That if you were alive during his time on earth and were to touch him, he would have no physical body to touch. Again, Greek philosophy being one of the two major components of Gnosticism's framework, they used what the Greeks called dokeo, which translates to seem or to appear. And what we'll see John doing is addressing this point directly because he did what? He experienced Jesus personally. He was there during Jesus' earthly ministry, and he'll tell us in these first four verses That he saw Jesus with his own eyes. He heard Jesus speak with his own two ears. He touched Jesus with his own two hands. He'll argue that if anyone knows that Jesus' body was real, he says, it's me. So on a micro level, this is what was going on in the early Christian churches. 
Now, if we look from a macro level, what's clear, argues Dr. James Boyce, is that in the early days of the expansion of the Christian church, there was a large measure, he argues, of agreement, if not unanimity, as to what the faith was, he says. We all can agree what the faith is, faith in Christ, Christian faith. But in time, as various heretical movements began to appear within the church, this initial agreement broke up in places, and many, he says, normal Christians found themselves asking, well, they're teaching this, we've been told this, but they're persistent in how they teach it. So what is Christianity after all? Is belief in Jesus Christ essential to the highest form of Christianity? Boyce goes on to state, in the churches to which John wrote, these questions had grown out of a major schism caused by the Gnostics. So this is where we meet the Apostle John this evening. In these first four verses of 1 John chapter 1, he begins, John begins to answer such fundamental questions like, who are we? And what is truth? And before we look at the passage that's in front of us tonight, let's stop now and ask for the Lord to help us, to give us eyes to see what his spirit is saying to the church. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come with boldness, asking for your help, confessing to you that within us we have no ability to understand your word, Lord, to know its truth, and to hide it within our hearts, to apply it to our lives, and to walk in faithfulness. Father, we need your help, and you've promised to give us your help. You've promised to give help to those who ask. So we come to ask you tonight that you would give us wisdom, Lord, that you would give us grace. Help us to understand your word, to live out your truth in all of our lives for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many scholars, comments John Hanna, many scholars make the point that the beginning of this letter, the prologue and of the gospel by the same author, remember John's the the author of, of John's gospel, that these two books have significant similarities in both structure and content. And though the Gospel of John introduces us to a person, the letter introduces us to something about that person. John goes on to open this letter by writing in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning He concludes, the word of life. Immediately, you notice, we're drawn into the passage by asking, wait, what is which? And who is we? And most of verse 1 consists of four dependent clauses beginning with the word which. From the beginning, have heard, have seen, have looked upon and handled or touched. And these dependent clauses are then followed by a digression that functions to describe the content of the which. That which being the word of life. It's also important to note that these dependent clauses are connected to the main verb found that we'll see later in verse 3 being declared. We declare. And these causes function to emphasize the authority behind the content of the proclamation. That proclaiming the we being apostolic. The repetition of we demonstrates here that the apostle John is presenting testimony. And last Sunday evening in his sermon from chapter 7 of the book of Joshua, Pastor Robbins took a minute to demonstrate from the passage being studied that pronouns matter. Why? 
It's as easy as saying because they do, right? They matter. So when you all hear we and know it's one person writing this letter, albeit by the aid of the Spirit, what John is doing is he's using a plural pronoun to offer more authority to the subject as it's most likely referring to a group of people, and that group of people, i.e., right, being the apostles. The apostles who experienced firsthand the, the physical body of Christ, the knowledge of the giver of life. Thus, by using the plural pronoun we, John is writing from the perspective of collective apostolic authority. Nine times will John, when referring to himself in 1 John, use the, per, the first person singular. But here, using we, he identifies himself with the apostles in writing this letter. It adds to the authority. He's describing in these first four clauses found in verse 1 what they, the apostles, saw in the earthly ministry of Christ. He's doing this by emphasizing their personal contact with him, and we'll go over this. They've heard him. They've seen him. They've looked upon him. Their hands have touched him. And here, by using this phrase, from the beginning, that which was from the beginning, a phrase which occurs seven additional times just in this first letter alone, John is stating that what they observed from Jesus throughout his earthly life was consistent with the day in which they first, the apostles, first encountered him. It maintained consistency. Jesus himself was consistent from the minute we met him. And in the gospel, for instance, we, we see John employ the same phrase for the earthly beginnings of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 11, which happens to be the first of his many miracles, John writes, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples, his disciples believed in him. What was the purpose again of the gospel? That being of the gospel of John. To introduce its readers to a person, that person being the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Introducing its readers to the person of the Son of God through his claims and demonstrations, through his words and works. And here, John goes on to tell us that the purpose of 1 John, the writing before us this evening, is to assure a troubled audience. Those early Christians, a couple generations, remember, removed from Christ about an aspect of the Christian life. Christian life, Christ life. Whereas the gospel declares God the Father's message revealed through God the Son to the world, here the purpose in 1 John is to apply the implications of that message to a group of believers who were ravaged by those teaching false doctrine about that person, about the person and his accomplishments as it relates via Christ to their spiritual lives. Can't you just hear John trying to plead with those believers of the early church, saying, who were y'all going to believe? We saw Jesus. We observed his many miracles. We heard many of Jesus' conversations firsthand. We heard him speak audibly. We sat next to him in the upper room where he washed our feet. We had contact with him. We... John writes, we know this Jesus very well. Don't listen to them. John is urgently claiming, along with the other apostles, 
firsthand knowledge of the Godson, of Jesus Christ. And we'll see shortly in verse 4 as the passage unfolds, the topic at hand is not so much about the earthly existence of Jesus as it is his spiritual mission. As one commentator stated, that which, was, that which was from the beginning, it points to the gospel rather than to the personal Christ. It points to the message he came to proclaim. A point that leads another commentator to write, John's purpose in the first three verses is to emphasize the nature of the object being proclaimed rather than on the activity of proclaiming it. He's reminding his readers of the character of the Christian message rather than to draw attention to the actual act of preaching it. And what is that object? He tells us that which was from the beginning. And John's here from the beginning is essentially the same declaration as in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. Through Christ, God is made audible. Hebrews 1, verse 2 and 3, God has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand, as the verse concludes, of the majesty on high. Through Christ, God is made audible. We can hear. Through Christ, John tells us, God is made visible. But look no further than Colossians 1 verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Mark 3, verse 10, even telling us that through touching Christ, God healed those who touched the person. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And again, why? Why is this emphasized here in the first four verses? But mainly, why is it emphasized here in verse 1? Because through him, him being Christ, through Christ, we are told here that we're given what? Life. It's only through Christ, John tells him, that you have life. And even as verse 2 tells us, it gets better, doesn't it? Verse 2 tells us this life is eternal. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested to us. Because although the Christian message is the primary means of bringing eternal life, here John demonstrates that it is of supreme importance, supreme importance to John to make it beyond evident that the life to which it bears witness was revealed by God in the historical person of Jesus Christ. That life was revealed through Christ. Howard Marshall agrees, writing, Indeed, it is identical with Jesus, this life, so that the writer can say that he has actually seen it. He's seen Jesus. But he's seen life given through him. Because of this, he is qualified. We would call that an eyewitness. He's qualified to testify. If he was in a courtroom, he could stand there and say, I saw him. He's qualified, Marshall writes, to testify to it or to bear his personal witness to what he himself has actually seen. But not just seen, right? He himself has actually experienced this life. 
This eternal life, John tells us, was with the Father and then appeared to us. And the language here is exactly that which was used of the personal word in verse 2 of chapter 1 of John's gospel. This word, remember, which was with God in the beginning. And again, in this massive run-on sentence that encompasses three total verses, he uses the meat found in verse 2 to reveal three distinct points about the giver of eternal life. He says, it was Jesus who brought life from heaven to the elect. Notice the verb manifested used twice here. Jesus is life what? It's manifested. Jesus is life revealed. Moreover, this life, the earthly life of Christ, to which the apostles bear witness, we have seen. And we bear witness. This witness bore through their own personal experience. It's not secondhand, it's firsthand. The message of Christ is now their message as the verb declare demonstrates the reporting of a knowledge gained or a knowledge attained. They declare it because they've gained the knowledge to do so. We've seen it. We've heard it. We've touched it. Lastly, and arguably, the main thrust of this first letter is that it is God who gives eternal life through his Son. God gives eternal life through his Son. One writer comments, the phrase, with the Father, is not a statement of Jesus' pre-existence as the immediate subject, as the immediate subject contextually is life, the life that Jesus revealed in his earthly ministry, the life possessed of the Father that the Son came to reveal, this being eternal life. Here, John, by depicting God as Father, he maintains a consistency from the gospel where Jesus' own relationship to God is, is expressed to or referred to as his Father more than 100 times. And as we move into verse 3, John continues to reiterate what he has already affirmed in both verses 1 as well as verse 2. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John then goes on to explain his rationale behind the proclaiming of what he has seen and what he has heard. And what does he tell us here in verse 3? So that you may have fellowship with us. The Gnostics wanted to establish a fellowship of the intellectually elite. It was exclusive. And by contrast, what are the apostles doing here? They're endeavoring to proclaim to the world what they had received, undeservedly. This is a fellowship with those, John tells us, and for those who proclaim the what? The word of life. This word of life also involves fellowship with the Father, he tells us, and with the Son. And this fellowship isn't exclusive. Nor do some Christians walk in greater intimacy than others is what they're trying to more or less get to the finish line here. This fellowship with the Father and the Son is not exclusive. There aren't Christians who have more intimacy with God through the Son. It's the result that all of God's children, all of God's children experience through the life-giving gospel Revealed to them by the Spirit in his witness to the person and the work. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of the Father, the Son of God. And John plainly states the Son of God is who? Jesus Christ. 
and which he'll do referring to Jesus as the Son or Son of God 24 times throughout this letter, which is important to note because it, it clearly affirms what John's opponents denied. John's saying, guys, you're, you're wrong. You can't embrace a historical, merely human Jesus and not his deity. We confessed that this evening, didn't we? From the larger catechism. Jesus is more than a prophet. He's deity in flesh. Further, he's, he's Jesus Christ. He's God's anointed one. And you're not in the family of God. You don't have fellowship with him, he's saying, if you deny his deity. And these things John concludes, we write to you, he says, that your joy, that your joy may be full. And this joy that John expresses here, as he concludes the prologue to his first epistle, is the supreme delight. Because it is that, the supreme delight that the apostles experience when true fellowship becomes what those have heard, what the apostles have proclaimed, that becomes their experience when they see others coming to faith in Christ. This message of proclamation being that of life through Christ, they find joy, the apostles do, in seeing others come to know their Christ, but not just coming to know him, walking with him, and not walking with those who seek to deceive them, but hand in hand with apostolic testimony and apostolic teaching. The apostles long to see the giver of life, Jesus Christ. They long to see him expanding his church, enlarging the community of faith and truth. We do that today too, don't we? We long to see the churches grow throughout the world. John Stott all but sums up this point perfectly as he writes, the purpose of the proclamation of the gospel is therefore not salvation, he says, but fellowship. And wait before you say, wait a second. Stock goes on to say, yet properly understood, this is the meaning of salvation. As fellowship is specially a Christian word and denoted that common participation in the grace of God, Stott writes, the salvation of Christ and the indwelling of the spirit, which is the spiritual birthright of all Christian believers. Being in fellowship means you, you have come to salvation. This salvation has been attained through the person and the work. It's been accomplished through the blood of Christ. They want to see the church expanded, that this fellowship, that many come to saving faith. Not through Gnosticism, you can't, he says. But through Jesus Christ, the giver of life. So how then do we apply this text this evening? Well, I think one of the immediate questions brought about by this passage is the question, or one of the questions that our culture does not like engaging with. What happens when you die? Judgment? Or maybe simply just death? Right? There are people who think they can prolong death. We're all doomed to die. And then we're all set to face judgment. A couple weeks ago, I kept seeing articles about the final wish of an allegedly famous actor who had passed away. He was quoted some years back, and this is, I guess, what his, his final testimony he wanted to be known about, but he was quoted some years back about when he died, he hoped to be known not for his acting work, he said, but for the things he did to try to help other people. He wanted to be known as, as a good person. Look at these things I did. 
I don't want to be known for that show I did. I want to be known for the things that I did to help other people. But this isn't enough, is it? And that's the reality. Escaping God's wrath, being delivered from his judgment, however noble your worldly endeavors are, or in his case, were, this escape and deliverance can only come through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And those here who have yet to hear, who have yet to see, who have yet to behold, have yet to touch Christ, who struggle with the thought of judgment after death, look no further than the first four verses of 1 John, where you will find, John tells you, the fullness of joy, found not in some mystical or historic figure of Christ who, who has no saving powers, but in the giver of life. For blessed are those who have not seen and yet have done what? Believed. Jesus came to bring life, eternal life, through the procurement of divine forgiveness for you through his atoning, substitutionary sacrifice. Further, indeed, it is, it's our Savior who himself was recorded by Luke in chapter 24, verse 39, saying, Behold, to Jesus' words, Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, he tells the disciples, Handle me and see, he tells him. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. This was recorded by someone who saw Jesus, who heard him say this after he rose from the dead. And if we look at the verse before, verse 38, Jesus having just appeared to the disciples, what does he say to them? Because clearly they're troubled. He says, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise he knows what their hearts are thinking. Why did doubts arise in your hearts? Our faith, that is, the Christian faith is not, friends, some shot in the dark. It's based on the facts of eyewitness testimony, the testimony from those who walked with and talked with Christ. And to this point, Jim Boyce notes, no one today can repeat the object experiences of Christ possessed by the apostles. We can't do that today. And this is why we need their testimony. This is why we need the, the testimony of the apostles to Christ is preserved in their writings. He goes on to say, nevertheless, we can and must repeat their subjective experience as on the basis of the objective revelation the Holy Spirit makes Christ alive and real both to our minds, he says, as well as to our hearts. We know that Christ lives because of them, because of the apostles. And we must, in a world that continues to grow in its opposition to the truth of Scripture, we can never let go of the divine apostolic testimony, but like Thomas, do what? It was Thomas who, after being told by Jesus to touch his side, what does he declare? My Lord and my God. Thirdly, the message that Christ announced through his incarnate life and atoning death is to be proclaimed because he left instructions to do that. We're told to do it, and he tells us how to do it. And we know this because these four verses in 1 John 1, it tells us as much. The apostles taught it, and therefore, all those who claim Christ and him crucified are to do so as well. And as we here shortly consider the table before us, it's important for us to realize that there is more going on in the Lord's Supper than just a mere memorial. We are, in fact, nourished by the body and blood of our Savior when we eat the bread 
And when we drink the cup, in memory of his sacrifice for sinners such as you and sinners such as myself, we're nourished in the sacrament and we're nourished so that we might proclaim the mercy of the Lord. We truly proclaim him as we eat and as we drink in his name and thus the strength that we receive from feeding on him spiritually in the sacrament, it empowers us as we go forth to proclaim him to all the world. And fourthly, as we're told in, in verse 4 that these things, these things were done, it says, so that your joy may be full, I believe it begs the question, is your joy found in the temporal, in the world, more than the spiritual? Do the material things of your life bring you more joy than spiritual privileges, such as the table before us? It's only natural as fallen creatures that we crave outside joy of that life-giving relationship with Christ but for the Christian made by God in the likeness of God whose chief end is to do what? Enjoy God and glorify him forever. Your fullness can only be found in the life-giving experience of encountering God's son, the God's son, Jesus Christ. Does this relationship shape your perspective of life? Does it shape the content of your prayer life? Is your contentment found in other joys or in the sharing of the life-giving good news of the gospel? See, this is what makes what we do here on this day so countercultural because we're not a country club. We're not a secret society that possesses or claims to have some secret knowledge that we can't share with you, but maybe we can. No, what we do here isn't proclaiming to hold the key to upward social mobility, but rather as a blood-bought family of adopted brothers and sisters, we declare through the preaching, through the teaching, through the singing, through the praying of the word, along with the administration of the sacraments, that Jesus Christ is Lord and Jesus Christ is Savior. And this fellowship is for anyone, not exclusive, but it's for anyone who acknowledges themselves to be a sinner, repents of their sins, and believes in Jesus, who is the Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, bless your word. Father, use it in our hearts and in our lives. Change us by it, Father. Help us to put aside our pride and discontentment and in humility stick to the old paths, to engage in the ministry of reminders, to go back to the old story of Jesus and his cross, Jesus and his love, Jesus and his glory, so that looking back we may have grace to cling to hope as we look forward to that moment when every knee should bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. For we ask this in Jesus' holy name.